All right, Acts chapter 2 tonight. Or no, Acts chapter 3. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Every time we start a new chapter, I get optimistic we're going to move faster. Acts chapter 3. Well, we are going through the book of Acts on Sunday night. And um, today we do begin a new chapter. Last week at the close of chapter 2, we saw how this first New Testament church in Jerusalem was unified. They held to pure doctrine. They fellowshiped with each other. They held communion. They prayed together. They feared God. They were charitable. They faithfully gathered together. They ate together. And they praised God together. So this church was doing all of this, and remember, they had favor with God and all the people. God was working mightily in this church early on here in Jerusalem, and because of all that they were doing, the Lord added to their church daily such as should be saved, and we just need to keep continuing steadfastly as a church. That's our theme this year, and we just need to stay with the stuff. God will take care of the rest. Chapter 3, let's read verses 1 through 11. I actually meant to ask Brother Long to sing the scripture song, but I was distracted. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's hard not to read it and not sing it, right? And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered in, entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John... All the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. So we were told in chapter 2 that many signs and wonders were done in Jerusalem. And now we are getting an account of one of those instances of what this would have looked like. And we see first of all in verse 1 that Peter and John went up to the temple together at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. This would be our three o'clock in the afternoon. Wouldn't work well for me. That's my nap time. Amen. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) All right. They were going to prayer. Remember, God's intention for the temple was to be a house of prayer. In Isaiah 56, 7, God said, For mine house shall be called an house of prayer, for all people. Jesus reaffirmed it when he cleansed the temple. The temple had been 
corrupted by money-making schemes and ventures through money changers and selling of sacrifices. And Jesus finally had enough, went in there, chased them out, overturned the tables. And after that, he famously said in Matthew 21, 13, it is written, referring back to Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And so Peter and John here, they are in obedience to Christ by going to the house of prayer at the hour of prayer. So, in order for a church to be a church in action, then we need to go to the house of prayer at the hour of prayer. Therefore, you should make Wednesday night a priority. That is the time we pray together corporately. Just because Peter and John are the only two listed doesn't mean the rest of the church wasn't also going up to the temple for prayer. If anything, we have scriptural evidence that the church was gathering at the temple because we know from what we saw in chapter 2 that they continuing daily with one accord in the temple there in Acts 2.46. Acts 5.42 is going to say, and they were daily in the temple, Luke 24.53, and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. But verse 1 is going to zero in on Peter and John because of what is about to follow. So I just, want to, I just want to remind us that prayer is not only a priority individually, but it is a priority also corporately for our church. And men, if you can be at men's prayer, you should be there. It's an important time. What kind of a church is a church without corporate prayer? If a church body is not in prayer to the God they say they believe in, at the house, they say they uh, believe in this God, and, or at church, we would say today, then are they really functioning as a church at all? And yet, it's amazing how many churches have canceled their prayer, their prayer meetings. Can we really call ourselves a church if we won't even get together and pray together? Now, they not only went to the temple for prayer, but the temple, at this point, was a place where they would cast their net for souls. Uh, These were once fishermen, and now they are fishers of men, as Jesus had called them three and a half years earlier. And early on, the temple was proving to be a very fruitful fishing ground, if you will. People were being harvested, obviously, we saw last chapter, in the thousands. And people gathered at the temple because they had at least some interest in the things of God. Christianity, New Testament church Christianity being new, that was a great place to go if you were trying to reach people who already knew something about God and just needed help connecting the dots. And so they were going to the temple there to get converts as well. And it makes sense to me that they would do so. Uh, Not to mention the gospel was to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. When Jesus first sent the twelve forth, you may remember that He told them, Go not in the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus says, And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And so eventually, the fertile field of Jerusalem would be harvested to the point that God would begin to use persecution to scatter believers to go further beyond just their little comfort zone there of Jerusalem. 
and he would want the Gentiles reached as well. And he always did, by the way. If you read the Old Testament, there was always provision made for the stranger, which is the Gentile. But there was going to be special emphasis. And so for now, I believe this early church going to the temple, they're being obedient to the commission that, that Jesus gave them to go into all the world, but I want you to start in Jerusalem. And while we desire to reach all people, we need to keep seeking for those who desire to be reached. Sometimes I have to tell our teachers, don't get so frustrated with this one that's so distracting, but you pour yourself in the one that's fillable. That one's got a bunch of holes in it. Cisterns with holes, Jeremiah said. Same thing, we, we want to reach all, but there comes a point where we may have to cast a net somewhere else. Uh, we, we want to go where people are desirous to be reached. And so we seek for the best fishing holes, amen. If we cast our net in Rapid Valley and nothing comes up, we move to another spot. We keep seeking for where the fish are biting. That's not to say we forsake an area where we haven't gathered in yet, but we are to keep drilling holes in the ice until we find the perch. Listen, we're looking for those that are hungry. We might leave a line in the water over there, but we need to change our focus sometimes. And so if there hasn't been a harvest yet, we keep praying. We, we keep trying to reach for sure, uh, but we keep praying, and then we come back again and again as God allows. And we pray that in time God will bring a harvest. But He made it clear the harvest is up to Him. We plant and we water, but the Lord brings the increase. And so we're commanded to go into all the world. Sometimes we have to move to another area. I don't know why. I just feel like this needs to be said. Sometimes you're focusing so much on this one person or this one area that you're neglecting the rest. Luke 14, 23, The Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Jesus came to seek and to save. And sometimes we need to do a little more seeking. We get so hung up over here that we miss what God wants us to be doing over there. And we got to be led of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told Peter in Luke chapter 5, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. And when they did, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes. What did not work... The first time, it worked again later on. In their case, in Luke 5, the timing was off. John chapter 21, the disciples had caught nothing. But when Jesus showed up, He said, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. They were trying to draw real fast. Um, that's what I'm picturing. In that case, Jesus said, you just need to try another location. The mechanics were right in both cases. One, the timing was off. One, they just need to go another location. And I'm just saying, we need the direction of the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus to show up and say, this is where I need you to, to go after people. Um, there are souls ready to be harvested, no doubt. And we just need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. And so we'll keep planting seed, of course. We're still going to keep door hangers and all that kind of stuff, handing out our cards. Uh, we're going to keep watering the field. And all the while, we need to be in search for that field, which is already white unto the harvest. And so I just wanted to kind of encourage us there that we need to be mindful that just because something's not happening here, 
maybe there's something going on over here on the right side and we've got to get over there. And so just be sensitive to how the Holy Spirit is working in your life. And, and, you know, well, this one person, man, I'm just so burdened for him. Great. Keep that burden, but don't forsake getting the word out to others. So back to our text here. Here's Peter and John, and they're going to the house of prayer, the time of prayer. And it's important tonight that we understand that these men were men of prayer. And that's going to be important as we go through this account. But first, in verse 2, we see there's a man who has been lame from the time of his birth. We're going to learn in chapter 4 that this man was above 40 years old. So for 40 years of his life and more, he couldn't go anywhere on his own unless he were to drag himself along. Somebody had to carry him everywhere he went, never able to walk. This was before ADA regulations. <laughs> Confession time. I, I didn't know what ADA meant once upon a time, and we had the cruise ship, our RV, and we name all our cars. But So the cruise ship, we took it out, and I, I made a reservation at ADA spot. It's like, man, that thing looks pretty roomy. <laughs> I didn't know what it meant. And so I show up, and I'm like, oh, man, there's like a handicap sign on there. I didn't know what to do at that point. Anyway, we just kept it, and we partied because it was like big and open. But anyway, this was before ADA things. There was no consideration for people who couldn't get around. And so this guy, there's, there's nothing to help him mobility-wise. And there was no social programs to assist in his, um, his needs in life to survive. And the majority of the people, they had to labor to live. And these, these people worked, and they lived hand to mouth. And this man, I'm saying this, this man is in a bad way. Sometimes it's okay for people to beg. Those who truly cannot do anything with themselves in their life, and that's where this man is. He swallowed his pride, and he's begging. People in this, in this man's condition had no other choice. And so what they would do is they would take somebody like this and they would strategically place them in the city in hopes of where they would, could get the most money. I don't know if they had people in cahoots like we're sure that happens today. Um, I know we went down to Denver. What, what's that, the 16th Street Mall? Is that what they call that place? And you couldn't go past a corner without somebody having a sign. And then we were there walking back from the aquarium that night, I think it was. It was late. And they were throwing their signs away, walking the next block over, picking up all their stuff and all their food. There was nothing wrong. They were just making money. And so it's hard to know sometimes, I guess. But anyway... They would kind of do the same thing in those days. I don't know that they were some kind of racket at times, but this guy had a legitimate need, so they place him where they think he can get some money. You'll remember in Luke chapter 16, Lazarus the beggar, he was placed at the gate of the rich man who fared sumptuously every day. Obviously, the hope was this rich man is going to be merciful to this poor man and try to help meet his need. And so here's this, this man, this beggar in our text, and he's placed at the gate of the temple because the temple... It not, only went, it not only went with prayer, but it also went with alms. And all that went together. We, we read of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 that his prayers and his alms had come up for a memorial to God. In Mark chapter 12 and in, and in Luke 21, Jesus, he sits over by the treasury of the temple. Remember that? And he's watching as people are putting in their money. And that's when he made the comment about the widow with her two mites. And so 
prayer and alms going together, it stands to reason that this lame beggar in our text is going to be met by those going up to the temple with alms ready to give, and perhaps they will give to him as well. And we see that he's laid at the gate which is called beautiful. I imagine it's called beautiful because it was beautiful to see. <laughs> it sounds like a gate I would name, amen? That's rusty gate, that's beautiful gate. That's Okay, anyway, nobody's in the mood for that tonight. But he's at this gate, beautiful. This, the exact location of this gate, it's, it's not agreed on 100%. But it is generally agreed that the beautiful gate was located on the east side of the temple. It is said that its gates were 70 feet high. And the doors 60 feet wide. And it was covered over with brass. I guess Corinthian brass was really good. That's what it says it was covered with. And because of that, it was a beautiful sight to see. And either the beautiful gate was the first gate you came to on the east side that would open into the court of the Gentiles, which would surround the temple. A lot of times when you read your Bible, they went into the temple. It's not like they went into the holy place. They're just entering the temple grounds, the temple mount area. And the beautiful gate on the east side, opened up right into the court of the Gentiles, which surrounded the entire temple area. Or the beautiful gate was the next gate you would come to as you go through the court of the Gentiles, you would then go to the court of the women. And the beautiful gate would be there, and then after the court of the women would be the court of Israel. And if Jews were purified, they could enter into the court of Israel. And so you had the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of Israel, and then, of course, you had the holy place and the holy of holies and so forth. And so he's laid, if you can picture that in your mind, people are coming up from the east side. And because of this beautiful gate, a lot of people entered in there. Not to mention, when you turned around, you could see the Mount of Olives. So it was just a, a neat place to enter in, if you will. And, you know, we only have the one entrance, <laughs> one entrance right? Uh, we all come in that gate over here. Well, well, there was different choices. And so a lot of people would come in through the east gate, and uh, not just to see the splendor, but also because you, you've got a direct shot as you're walking in into the court of the women as well. And, and more importantly, when you think about the beautiful gate, and, and you come into the court of the Gentiles, if the beautiful gate entered into the court of the women, the treasury was located in the court of the women. So if you were a beggar, you want to be where people are going to put their money into the treasury. Amen. You want to be sitting where Colin's at. Yeah, he's begging for money tonight. Look at that. Those DeGarmos are shifty folks. And so it would make sense. Hey, if you're going to put money in this box, I got a need, you know. I usually tease people when they're putting in, and I'm sitting back there, just write it to cash. I'll take it. Um, I'm only teasing. And so that, this place where this man's laid, it's, it's a good place to be if you're looking for, for money. And so we find him in verse 3 doing that. He sees Peter and John about to go into the temple, and he asked an alms. What are alms? Alms were, they are a monetary act of compassion that you extend to the poor. I like how Acts 9.36 speaks of alms. It mentions Tabitha as a woman who was full of good works and alms deeds. So giving was part of her works. It was purposeful is what I'm saying. We read in the gospel accounts how our Lord, He would be moved with compassion. 
He taught His disciples, sell all that you have and give alms and lay up treasure in heaven. In Matthew 25, Jesus equated our feeding the hungry, our giving drink to the thirsty, our helping the stranger, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, visiting the imprisoned, all of those, He said, those are acts upon Me personally. If you've done it under one of the least of these, you've done it unto Me, He said. James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, If a brother or a sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, and be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not of those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? What's James saying? Listen, don't just say, well, I'm going to be praying for you when you got the means to help. We're not only to be a blessing in word, but we are to be a blessing in deed. Therefore, having compassion upon others, it leads us into action. Not just saying, well, I'll be praying for you. The Bible teaches that we are blessed when we give to the poor. When we see those who truly cannot provide for themselves, we ought to be moved with compassion because it is only by the grace of God that we're not in that condition. And don't look at somebody like that and say, well, if they had their heart right, You know, Job didn't need to hear that right after everything happened to him. Well, that's the temptation by many. I remember growing up, my mom made sure that we as as children understood what God has blessed us with, it can disappear tomorrow. Don't think yourself better than the poor and the helpless. Job said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Bless me the name of the Lord. So this beggar, he sees Peter and John, they're about to enter into the temple, and he asks them for alms. We're not told if this man knew Peter and John or not, if he had a previous association with them. My opinion as of now is he didn't. And the reason I I say that is because it wasn't too long ago, before this point, really just a few weeks before, that Jesus is at the temple and people are bringing the sick to be healed. And so no doubt this man would have heard about that, and had he known Peter and John and their association with Jesus, I have a suspicion that he would have asked for more than just alms. Just my personal opinion, so I don't think there was a connection between these three men beforehand. But in verse 4, Peter and John, they fastened their eyes upon this man, and that's important. They fastened their eyes upon him. And, And this is where we need to understand that these were men of prayer. They were going up there to pray. They're being led of the Holy Spirit their eyes fasten upon this man. And this is important because they would have passed this beggar more than just today. Think about it. They were at the temple daily. This man was laid at the beautiful gate daily. What's different about today? And here's something to think about. Jesus probably saw this man. He went to the temple. Why now? Why this beggar? Why this lame man? Why all of a sudden? The apostles didn't heal him before. Jesus didn't heal him before. Why now? You know, the apostles did not heal all that they saw in need. I believe the difference on this day, as opposed to previous days, is because these men were men of prayer. They're being led by the Holy Spirit 
to who they are to perform this miracle for. They were in tune with the Holy Spirit as they walked with God. And that's what caused their eyes to fasten on this man this time. What can we learn from this? And, and I know this is going to sound cattywampus at first, but when, when you think about this account, we don't solely minister to the needs that we see. Stay with me. But we minister to the needs the Holy Spirit commands us to. If we minister to every need we saw, we would end up forsaking other aspects of our walk with God. There's just too many needs. So there has to be a balance. For example, if you'll take the account of when Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda, there were many who needed healing. In fact, the Bible says in John 5, 3, a great multitude of folks were in need of healing that day. And they're sitting around there, some been carried there. They're waiting for that water to stir, remember the account? In hopes that if they see the water stir, the first one who can get there is going to be healed of their infirmity. But from what is recorded for us, it seems Jesus only picked one to heal. Why did Jesus only go to one? There was a great multitude, the Bible says. Well, I'll tell you, first of all, one thing for sure is he's obeying his Father's will. God was guiding him, and God wanted that particular need met on that day. So we need discernment. We need to be led of the Holy Spirit. And you'll know when you're being prompted by God, when you're prompted by the Holy Spirit, because your eyes are going to become fastened, as it were, on that person and on that need. We were stationed in, in Mississippi several times, but the, the last time we were stationed there, um, there was a family that showed up, and they had a lot of baggage. And they got all in, though. I mean, they, they got serious about their walk with God. Started to get some things right. Anyway, they had all kind of needs, but they had a vehicle need. And Adrian and I, we had that Suburban and we were going to trade it in. But our Lord, I mean, He fastened my eyes upon that need. I'd, I'd seen a lot of people with needs before. And, and the Lord fastened my eyes upon it. I began to pray about it. I mentioned to Adrian how the Lord had laid it upon my heart. And she said, yeah, the Lord's been telling me the same thing. And so being led together of that, we obeyed the Holy Spirit's leading. leading. We gave them the car. And though it had a lot of mileage on it, there was nothing wrong with it. And when Pastor Perkins was here last, he said, yeah, they're still driving that Suburban around. And I thought, Lord, I should have kept that car. <laughs> because what you don't know is um, after I got rid of that Suburban, I thought, man, I, that Suburban's been so good. Let's get another one. And so I drove up to Nashville, and I got one with only 63,000 miles on it. And I drove it in a snow. I drove up there in a snowstorm can in my CRX. Amen. <laughs> You ever drive four inches of snow with a CRX with about three inches of ground clearance through the interstate of Nashville? It was awesome. Bah! I'm from South Dakota at that point, so it was on. Everybody else is in the ditch. Like, how is the CRX able to even get through here? Anyway, I get up there and I buy this Suburban, and that thing was a lemon. I mean, we never had any good come out of that car. So I, I still believe it was of the Lord to get rid of that other one, to give it away, okay? So what I'm saying is don't expect this miraculous blessing. It may not happen. <laughs> we ended up trashing that car as soon as we could. I've known several people with vehicle needs in my life. But in that case, 
God very definitely said, this is the one that I want you to meet. You see, we can't can't meet every need that we see. We want to, but we can't. But we can minister to what the Holy Spirit says, that's the need I need you to go meet. And so we just need to be discerning. Out of all the beggars that Peter and John would have come across that day, this, this isn't an isolated case where it's just this one man that's at the beautiful gate. In fact, walking up to the temple, there would be people lining the stairs and the streets. And so there would have been more than just this guy at this gate and the other gates and around the temple area. But it was this day that God said, I want you to meet that need. And so there were plenty around that needed help, but God wanted this one met. And so we minister in obedience by faith and not just by sight. We've got to be in prayer, and we've got to be clearly directed by the Holy Ghost. And when your eyes become fastened, that's the need God intends for you to meet. And the eyes will affect the heart. And, and maybe you've, you've experienced this before. You just maybe weren't putting in, in these terms. There have been times, as a, as a general rule, I don't pick, pick up hitchhikers. But there have been times I've driven past somebody, and God just said, you need, to, you need to back up and pick that fella up. And I will. I'll put the thing in reverse, pick the guy up. I'll act real big like Caleb Rochette. Mike Sullivan said he should lead our ushering team. All he's got to do is walk up and say, move. (laughs) (laughs) Peter and John, they're both in agreement in verse 4. They're both being led by God. They both sense this moment is of God. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 18, 19, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. So being in agreement, in agreement, they say to this lame man, look on us. What an interesting thing to say. William Burkett, I found his commentary note here interesting, quote, that what the cripple could do, he must and did do towards his own healing. He could not move a foot, but he could fix an eye, end quote. And don't you love Romans 5, 6? For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. But you see, God needs our participation. We are not Calvinists who believe that you can get saved against your will. Well, it's just the grace is so irresistible whether you want to be saved or not, you're going to be saved. No, we, we believe here that God has given you a free will to make that decision to make a move toward Him through faith. And so they say, look at us. And that was really about all the guy could do. But God needs our participation. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. If you'll jump ahead for just a moment, notice verse 16 in our text. We see this miracle was through faith. And His name, speaking of Jesus, and and His name through faith in His name, now talking about the crippled man. So faith in Jesus by this crippled man hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by Him hath given Him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. It took faith. It uh, It took Him believing 
and, and placing his faith and trust in Christ. And then we see in verse 5 that the crippled man, he now expected to receive some money. Hey, look, look upon us. He just asked them for alms. And they say, look at us. And no doubt he's thinking, good, I'm about to get some alms from these guys. And Peter and John, in verse 6, they say, silver and gold have I none. And I wonder what this guy was thinking at that point. I like to hand out tracts when I give money to people like that. I remember once I was in Montgomery, and this guy was begging for money. And I said, sure, I've got some money for you. And I took out a gospel tract. I said, in order for you to get this money, you've got to listen to my spiel. <laughs> he was probably thinking, oh, great, here we go. Silver and gold have I not. I've heard it a hundred times. So this man, he's begging for money. But I want you to understand, when we minister to others, especially those of you who are, are working with people, listen, we need to understand that a lot of times what they're crying out for is not the real need. This man's crying out for money, but that's not his true need. He had a greater need, and his need went beyond the physical and into the spiritual. And a lot of times when we're ministering to people, they'll say, well, I just this. No, you, you got a deeper need. They just don't want to admit it yet. They're still trying to hide it. And we have to dig deeper sometimes. I can't verify that this is true from the People's New Testament commentary, but listen to what was written here. I tried to find out whether this actually happened. Though the early church had poured out its gifts abundantly, Peter had not enriched himself and was a poor man, presenting a great contrast to the popes who claimed to be his successors. You've got to understand, a lot of these commentators were like coming out of the days of Catholic oppression. And so, you know, everything was... Anyway. And so he says, in great contrast to the popes who claimed to be his successor, it is related that Thomas Aquinas, or I think that's how you say it, Aquinas? Thomas Aquinas came to Rome and visited Pope Innocent IV. He looked somewhat amazedly upon the mass of plate and treasure which he saw there. So, said the Pope, you see, Thomas, we cannot say, as did St. Peter of old, silver and gold have I none. No, said Aquinas, neither can you command, as did he, the lame man to arise and walk. <laughs> Peter had that which the popes have not. Boom. Well, after Peter says, silver and gold have I none, he goes on to say, but such as I have, give I thee. So they had, and this, is, this will be our emphasis in our closing, such as I have, give I thee. They had received this power freely, and they're going to give it freely. And, and we must learn that while we may not have what somebody is asking for, we can give what God has given us. We, we can give what we do have. Not all can give monetarily. I was so blessed tonight, somebody noticed my tires were wearing thin, and I received a check for tire money. I said to them, those tires are a picture of me. They're worn. <laughs> They're tired. Um, anyway, some people have it to give. Some people don't. And so not all can give monetarily, but I want you to understand that all can give of themselves. And what we can do is we can work in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And we, we don't have time here, but let's just quickly read again verses 7 through 11 to see this miracle. And he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up, and he leaped, and he leaping up stood and walked and entered in with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Can you imagine how this guy felt? And they knew that it was he which sat for alms. Oh, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they, they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And so I mentioned earlier, this man, he exercised his faith in Christ as Peter and John were exercising their faith in Christ. And it was faith in Jesus' name which caused this great miracle to take place. And so no matter how we are called to minister to others, we're always to do so with our focus on Christ. It's all about Him. We direct all of, our, all of the honor and glory to Him. It's not about, well, did you see what I was able to do today? Man, I taught that class. I don't even know what we would say. <laughs> Let me just give you the takeaways here and I'll be done because I don't feel like being here any, any longer. So these were men of prayer. That's what we need to understand. They were men of prayer. And this kind of working that we see here, it only comes forth by prayer and fasting. I just don't understand why God isn't moving. Are you praying enough? Maybe you need to fast. These were not only men of prayer, they were prepared men. And we don't know what's going to come at us. Sufficient are the evils of today. I mean, we, we don't know what's coming tomorrow. And, but we need to be prepared. And so we need to be people of prayer who are prepared and always walking with God and being led of the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I need to get back in this habit. i got to admit, ever since I started working more at the church, I've, I've lost this prayer in my life because I seem to be here and at the house so much. But I remember being in the military. Lord, today, would you guide me to that soul that needs you? Guide my feet to somebody who needs you. And so we've got to be in prayer. We've got to be led by the Holy Spirit, prepared. And remember that we can't minister by sight alone. And if we did, we'd run out of time. But we must not forsake all the other aspects of our life our walk with God because we're so focused on everything over here. And, and I see this sometimes in churches. One thing I'll tell you about the emergent church, as much as I have preached against that of late, they're very good with community involvement. But that focus can be so zeroed in right there that everything else loses its, its place. And so when we minister by sight alone, we're, we're going we're gonna to miss out on some other areas that God still wants us to be doing. And so we must minister in obedience to God, always being mindful of where He wants us to cast our net. And while we may not always have the money to help, God can and will use us to minister to others as we have been gifted. Because at the heart of everybody, their problem is spiritual. They need to be saved. And so we must minister in obedience to God, always being mindful of, of that person that needs to hear about Christ. And so... What we have been given freely by God, we now need to proclaim that to other people also as a free gift. That they too, what did somebody say? Salvation is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread, something like that. Um, that's what we need to be doing. And so here's the deal. I want you to get this in closing. 
We are surrounded by hurting people every day. There's no shortage of people who are crippled spiritually. And we have to have the Spirit of God upon our lives to make a difference. We can let people know that while I can't meet this physical need you have, I will give you what I can. Such as I have give I thee. And then we preach Christ. And it is the power that is in the name of Christ that begins to change hearts. Listen, Christ is what the world needs. And Christ is who we are to share. Oh, you got to come to our church. It's so great. Share Christ. Share Christ. By all means, invite them, but share Christ. Such as I have give I thee. This is a church in action, which is our focus. Preacher, I don't know what I can do. You have something to give. Such as I have, give I thee. Are you sharing the greatest need people have in their life? That's Christ. Are you sharing Christ? Let's pray.